Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. I just love worshiping God with y'all every week. Isn't it great to worship the Lord together? And our text today reminds us that worship doesn't stop when we stop singing, does it? Worship is a lifestyle of joyful, free, loving response to God's mercy towards us. So we want to continue worshiping God now through the study of his word with the goal of trusting and obeying him. Towards that end, why don't you bow your head with me one more time. I just want to ask a blessing now on this time of study of the scriptures. Lord, I long for myself and for our community here to become a community of people who worship you in spirit and in truth. And we worship you as a lifestyle that we walk in the joy and the freedom of the children of God. So I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now. Give us minds that are attentive to your word. Give us hearts that are not stubborn and rebellious, but that are humble, that are ready to trust and obey I pray for myself, Lord, that every word that comes out of my mouth would be true and glorifying to you and helpful to your people. And we just ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit right now, during this time, would you transform us by the renewal of our minds? Would you sanctify us by the truth of your word? We give you all the glory for it, asking that you would forgive our sins. Lord, I long for this people to become a spirit-filled, word-filled, wisdom-filled Countercultural community of righteousness that shows the goodness of Jesus to our world. So would you help us to become more like that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're giving our attention to some of the most famous words that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote a lot of famous words, but these are some of the most famous. I'm going to read these verses one more time. It's short, so just want to hear it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to make a few observations about this text. First thing, in this text, the Apostle Paul is calling the people of God to respond to the mercy of God. Everybody say, God is merciful. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You might circle that word, therefore, in your bulletin. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. 
Why does he say therefore? Well, for the first 11 chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been reflecting in great depth upon the truth that God is merciful. Romans is a deep, a deep book, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And if you go study those first 11 chapters, what Paul is saying over and over is that God is really, really, really loving. He's really merciful. He's very gracious. His love is greater and deeper than anything we can imagine. And nothing can conquer his love. And so now when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. By the way, this should be brothers and sisters. It includes both men and women. It's saying, family of God, give me your hearts. Give me your hearts. I'm pleading with you. Let the mercy of God, let the love of God that I've been talking about change you from the inside out. So let's just take a second to reflect on what Paul has been teaching about the mercy of God. We would need months to really soak up everything he says in these first 11 chapters. But I'm going to try to summarize in minutes. So help me, Holy Spirit. In the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans... He starts by saying that his whole life has been transformed by the good news, the gospel. Everybody say gospel. That word gospel just means good news. The good news that the son of God died for us and rose again and has been exalted as Lord of the universe. And Paul says that good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jews first and then Gentiles, which means this is good news for the whole world. And when Paul says salvation, he means God is literally going to solve every problem in your life and in human history through this good news. What is the good news of the gospel? Well, we just said it. It's that Jesus died for us and rose again and has been exalted as Lord. But now Paul spends the rest of his time unpacking that truth. And he starts out by reminding us that though God in his love and mercy created a world that is good and that's filled with beauty, human beings have foolishly rebelled against God, and every single one of us has participated in the world's evil. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul goes at length to make the point, if you're Jewish, if you're religious, if you've been instructed by the scriptures, you're still a sinner. And if you've never heard any of the truth of God, you're still a sinner. Nobody is without excuse. Some of us had the privilege of growing up in church, right? Our mamas or our daddies or our grandmas taught us the word of God. And so we knew right from wrong. But let me ask you the question. You knew it, but did you do it? Every one of us has broken God's word. Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the commandments of God are good, but there's something deeply wrong inside of us that when we hear the commandment of God, don't lust, we just start feeling lustful. When we hear the commandment of God, don't covet, we start coveting. There's something sinful, something deeply broken inside our human hearts that though the commandment of God tells us about God's truth and goodness, it can't change who we are. In fact, Paul says that the command brings forth this desire. It's revealing the sinfulness of our human condition. But Paul says even people who didn't hear God's word, God gave them a conscience. Every human being has some sense of right and wrong and that all of us have done stuff that we know is wrong. So even if you didn't grow up in a religious family, if you had all sorts of disadvantages and all sorts of pain that you went through, God has mercy. He has compassion on you, but you need to not fool yourself. There's, you know right and wrong, and you have many times done things that are wrong. So we cannot change that brokenness of our human nature. Paul talks about a war that's raging within the human heart. We know the good we want to do, but we can't do it. And so what, what's going to save us? And Paul says, here's the solution. God showed his love for us in this. 
that while we were still sinners, before we ever thought of trusting and obeying God, Jesus Christ came and died for us. He gave his life for us. And Paul says Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He did for us something that the law, the good commandments of God could never do for us. Jesus took our place. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Jesus obeyed all of his own commandments. And then Jesus died on the cross for us. Everybody say, Jesus died for me. He took on himself my sin and your sin. He took our guilt. He took our death. He took our pain. Why did he do that? He wanted to take what we deserved so that we could get what he deserves. On the cross, he bore it. He, he bore shame. He bore suffering. He bore death. But the cross, death couldn't hold him. So he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. Now, Paul says, if you want to be right with God, you, you never could get right with God by keeping the rules because the rules couldn't change your nature. All you got to do is trust Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. So the key word for Paul is faith. Everybody say faith. We just put ourselves in the hands of God. We just cry out to him for his mercy. And by his grace, by his mercy, he justifies us. That means he forgives our sin. He brings us into the family of God. He counts us righteous. He looks at us and doesn't see our own sinful rap sheet. He sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you've been justified by faith, now you have peace with God. That's a gift. You couldn't have earned peace with God. Everybody say peace with God. Which means even though you've been a big sinner this week, amen, you messed up. Some of us probably sinned yesterday, didn't we? And we came to church here trying to worship a holy God and we start to think, man, I'm such a big sinner. How could I worship him? The gospel doesn't cause us to deny the fact that we're sinners, but it says, though you have sinned through Jesus Christ, you have peace with God and you can come into his presence since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we restand. And, Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because one day we will be with Christ in a new creation. You see, Paul is realistic about the reality of evil in the world, but he says God's mercy is going to triumph over evil in the world. God's love is going to keep making all things new until creation itself is renewed and we're resurrected to be with God in that new creation. Until then, while we're living in a broken world, if we've been baptized into Christ, we've trusted in him, we've died to the old life, now we're living with Jesus. We're a part of his new creation. We're a part of his new humanity. His Holy Spirit lives within us by grace and the Holy Spirit reminds us that God loves us. Who needs to be reminded that God loves you this morning? That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's just here to say, you're a child of God. You're a beloved son of God. You're a beloved daughter of God. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Death can't separate you from the love of God. Life can't separate you. Angels can't separate you from the love of God. Demons can't separate you from the love of God. Your own fears can't separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from that love. And then in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul is talking about the fact it's not just one people group, but it's Jews and it's Gentiles, every ethnic group, every race, every language group, every culture on the, in the world will be brought into the mercy and love of God, will be reconciled with God and with one another. So he ends chapter 11 saying, praise God, his wisdom and his love are beyond anything we could imagine. That's the first 11 chapters of Romans. And now Paul says, I appeal to you because of all of that, by the mercies of God. And then what he goes on to say is basically, 
How do you respond to this mercy? With a lifestyle of worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that word worship is our key word here. It's a lifestyle of worship. Now this phrase though, how do you worship God? Well, we can worship God by singing at church on Sunday morning. That's a great way to worship God. But Paul's clearly talking about more than that. We said it's a lifestyle. And he uses this phrase, a living sacrifice. Now, I hope you notice that's what your English teacher calls an oxymoron. You can't be a living sacrifice. When he talks about a sacrifice, he's talking about the Old Testament system in which people express their worship to God by burning those animals on the altar. I know that feels very weird to us right now. I don't have time to explain it all. We read Exodus a while back. Go check the podcast. Talked about some of that. But here's the thing. A sacrifice is a dead animal getting burned on the altar. So what does he mean by saying you're a living sacrifice? He's saying now by God's grace and mercy, you've been brought into a new reality. All those old sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus. But now Jesus has given his life as the ultimate sacrifice. And so your sacrifice isn't animals anymore. Your sacrifice is yourself. But it doesn't mean you go burn yourself on an altar. It means you give your life. You give your life to God. Your whole life hears this news that God loves you and then responds by saying, yes, Lord, I love you in return. St. Augustine writes beautifully of this, and he talks about this metaphor of you, Christian, as a living sacrifice, your body and your soul being offered to God. And he points out that in the Bible, God's holy love is often referred to as a flame. First John says, God is love. Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. He says, the flame of God's holy love consumes us like that flame consumed those sacrifices in the old covenant. He says, that flame consumes us to drive out of us all of our self-destructive evil impulses and everything inside of us that would destroy us. And until the flame of God's holy love consecrates our bodies and our souls and then rises to God in worship. So what's being said here is. In all of life, we're learning to live with freedom and joy so that not just when we're at church on Sunday, but when we're doing dishes on Monday. Or when we're working through conflicts with our roommates or our spouses on the weekend. Aren't you glad God gives us Saturdays to remind us that we need Sundays? Days off. I'm talking totally about y'all and not my own life. I love you, baby, back there. (laughs) Some people have conflicts on Saturdays with their spouses or roommates. They've got to work it out. And it reminds you when you come to church on Sunday, you need grace, don't you? But what Paul is saying is the way that you love each other through those difficult situations on Saturday and the way that you do the dishes on Monday and the way that you share the gospel at your apartment complex on Tuesday and the way that you do your work with excellence at work on Wednesday, if it's done as a response to God's love that says, I want to honor you with this, it's all worship. It's all worship. Now, what if we're going to live that way, then that's going to involve being nonconformists who are transformed by grace. That's what Paul goes on to say. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. You want to circle that word conformed. What does the word conformed mean? I looked it up. Here's the dictionary definition. To conform is to behave and think in the same way as most other people in a group or society. So Paul is saying, dare to be different. Don't act like the rest of the world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed. Christians in every culture on the planet are called to be countercultural. Christians in every culture on the planet are called to not conform to the pattern of the world. Now, does that mean we hate our culture or we have to hate our country or whatever? No, it doesn't mean that. We can affirm what is good. Listen, every culture is made up of people who are made in the image of God. So there's good in every culture. But every culture is also made up of people who are sinners. So there's evil in every culture. Now, as Christians, we can affirm and celebrate good in our culture and in every culture. But we can't be shaped by the attitudes and actions that are destructive. When we when parents send our kids off to school, we talk about peer pressure, right? But peer pressure isn't just for kids in junior high. God knows it's strong. It's hard for kids in junior high. But peer pressure is for all of us. Because everything about our culture is telling us something about the meaning of life that isn't true. So we're called to be countercultural agents of change. We're called to be nonconformists. And this happens as we're transformed by the renewal of our mind. Everybody just point to your brain for a second. I want you to think about the fact that so much of Christian sanctification and Christian spiritual warfare is just about our thought life being controlled by the gospel instead of being controlled by the foolish lies of the devil and the culture. So in our thought life, we just have a choice. Today, am I believing the gospel? Am I believing that God loves me despite my sin? Am I believing that Jesus is going to make all things right? Am I Today, am I filled with thanksgiving because of all the countless blessings that are in my life? Today, am I focusing on the beauty of the people around me, the goodness in all the people around me? Or am I focused on something else? Think about the gospel. We're nonconformists. We're what John Stott called a contrast community, which means when people look at the church of Jesus Christ, they're supposed to see a different way of being human. A contrast community. When they look at the church of Jesus Christ, here's a model of what true humanity is supposed to look like. That happens as our thinking, as our mindset, our desires and priorities are transformed by the gospel. Now, since we're in the middle of, actually not in the middle of, we're at the end of a sermon series on public discipleship. We can't have a sermon series on public discipleship without quoting Dr. King a couple of times. So I want to read you a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. One of my favorite sermons by Dr. King is a sermon on this same passage of scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and it's called Transformed Nonconformists. That's the name of the sermon, Transformed Nonconformists. And for the first part of the sermon, he's talking about this fact that Christians are nonconformists. We're called to be countercultural. And he's talking about what that looked like in his context of resisting the evil of racism and of upholding the truth that every human being is made in the image of God. And every human being, red, brown, yellow, black, white, rich or poor, deserves to be treated with dignity and respect and love. So he's talking about countercultural witness and Christians being willing to do the hard work to be salt and light in our society to bring about change. And it's all good. All that first part of the sermon is great. But my favorite part is in the middle of the sermon. Because in the middle of the sermon, he says, all right, I've been talking about being nonconformists. But let's point out the fact that lots of people who are nonconformists are also jerks that are not making the world better. I mean, that was my paraphrase. That's not the words that he wrote. Let me read to you the word that he wrote. It's not enough to be nonconformist. He says this. Nonconformity in itself, however, may not necessarily be good and may at times possess neither transforming nor redemptive power. So if if I'm just like sticking it to the man for the sake of sticking it to the man, I might be a part of the problem in the world. 
instead of part of the solution. Dr. King, he said it. Don't get mad at me. Nonconformity per se contains no saving value and may represent in some circumstances little more than a form of exhibitionism. You know what exhibitionism? Self-display. I want everybody to look at me. Look at how just I am. Look at how good I am. Look at how much I disapprove of bad stuff in the world. Paul says you can, I mean, not Paul, Dr. King, reflecting on Paul's statement, says we can be nonconformists in a way that is really just conforming to the arrogant self-centeredness of the world. So that's the rebuke. But now listen, I'm continuing the quote. Listen to what Dr. King says about the solution. Paul, in the latter half of the text, offers a formula for constructive nonconformity. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Nonconformity is creative, King writes, when it is controlled and directed by a transformed life. And is constructive when it embraces a new mental outlook. By opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. That's Dr. King. I'm continuing the quote. He says, by opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. This experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential if we are to be transformed nonconformists and freed from the cold hard-heartedness and self-righteousness so often characteristic of nonconformity. End quote. What is Dr. King saying? He's saying it's not enough to be passionate about changing the world. First, you need to let Jesus change you. And as we believe the gospel, as we meditate on the mercy of God, as we spend a lot of time hanging out near the cross of Jesus, it makes it a lot harder in our zeal for truth and righteousness to become self-righteous. Because we remember this is God. This, if you want to know what God is like, you look at the naked, bleeding corpse of this Jewish Carpenter who gave his life so that a sinner like me could be embraced by God in a blissful eternity. That's what God is like. That teaches us to be counterculture in a way that is shaped by the humility and the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul here at the end of verse 2 says that when we live that way, only then are we going to be able to test and discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? If you want to know how do we live in this crazy time, Paul says, respond to the mercy of God by living a lifestyle of worship that is not shaped by the culture, but is transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Then you'll know what to do. Then you'll know how to live as a transformed nonconformist. It's a different way of being human that's shaped by our relationship with Jesus. Now, what I want to do for last few minutes we have together we're wrapping up this sermon series on public discipleship in which each week we've reminded ourselves that our new relationship with jesus transforms not only our private lives which is really really important but also our public lives because jesus is lord and savior not only of the intimate details of our private lives but of every sphere of human culture and human history so following jesus involves not only the secret spiritual disciplines of communion with God, but also the public acts of witness to the kingdom of God. And what I want to say right now is, if we're going to do that well, we really need this Romans 12, 1 and 2 reality to reshape us. Because the world's way of changing the world doesn't really solve the world's problems. Can we say that again? The world's way of changing the world doesn't really say, solve the world's problems. Have you noticed that 
the last couple hundred years of human history, our his, it's, it's cycle after cycle of injustice being rejected by a revolutionary impulse for justice, which gets power and then perpetuates injustice, which is often worse than the injustice it overthrew. The world's way of changing the world doesn't really seem to change the world. It doesn't seem to give glory to God. It doesn't really seem to liberate human beings. We need a different, countercultural way. So we need to be transformed, nonconformists. And I'm going to tell you four ways that I think in our public discipleship, we've got to be transformed by the gospel. We've got to not be conformed to the world if we're going to do public discipleship well. And this is going to wrap up our series. Let me just tell you the four now. You can jot them down. And then I'll take a couple moments to elaborate on each of them. First... In our public discipleship, Christians, disciples of Jesus, our motives and methods are refined by the gospel. What does it look like? If we're going to have public witness that's going to redemptively change culture, our motives and our methods have got to be refined by the gospel. Second, the countercultural, transformed by the gospel people of God. Here's the second point. We are willing to steward power to bless others but we're also happy to lay our power down. We are willing to steward power to bless others, but we're also happy to lay our power down. That's a mark of transformed nonconformity, gospel-shaped countercultural witness. Third, we are committed to core moral convictions while remaining humble about disagreements. Oh, Lord, if we could just do that one, wouldn't it? Make the world a more beautiful place. We are committed to core moral convictions while remaining humble about disagreements. And then fourth, our otherworldly hope gives us supernatural courage to live responsibly in this world. Our otherworldly hope, meaning we're waiting for Jesus to come back and set everything right, gives us supernatural courage to live responsibly in this world. We're going to act with courage. So let me elaborate on each one of those. First, if we're going to be this countercultural community that's transformed by the gospel, our motives and methods are refined by the gospel. Motives. What are the motives for all Christian action? Well, we could sum it up with this word love. Everybody say love. First Corinthians sixteen fourteen. Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Matthew 22. You know that this text. They come and ask him, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law? And. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. Then he quotes Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. That's Matthew 22, 36 through 40. So the motive for all Christian action is love, which means we want to honor God and we want to value human beings. Now, Jesus is clear when he says love your neighbor. That means everybody. It especially in this context means love your enemy. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Love your enemies. That's so important for public discipleship because one of the famous definitions of politics is this. Politics tells you who the enemy is. It's one of the famous ways people define politics. I remember several years ago in 
Chicago, um, gathering with a bunch of Christians who were doing inner city ministry leadership all over the world, actually. And Dr. John Perkins, one of my great heroes, we put his picture on the screen at the beginning of this sermon series, but a great pastor, evangelist, civil rights leader. He was probably 80 at this point. Actually, his 80th birthday party was during this conference. But he, he was doing the morning Bible study on Philippians. And I don't remember what verse he was talking about, but I remember he was getting all worked up about something. And then he said, do you want to know how you can tell the difference between politics and Jesus? I thought that was a great question. How do you tell the difference between politics and Jesus? He says, politics tells you who to hate and Jesus tells you who to love. Which means not that we cannot have disagreements. We can have strong disagreements. We need to say no to evil in the world. But we need to recognize the people with whom we're disagreeing. We're not trying to destroy them. We're not trying to humiliate them. Our goal is their redemption for the glory of God. So love everybody. Love has got to shape our motives. What if we're trying to love everybody, but people have competing interests? How is that supposed to work? Well, that can be very, very complicated, which gives us the point in a minute. We've got to have humility about some of our disagreements about policy and all that. But... There is a, a Bible word which is very important, which we keep talking about. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, love God and love people. That sums up the law and the prophets. But then in Matthew 23, verse 23, he's, he rebukes people for neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness, which he calls the weighty matters of the law. Which means if we want to know how to love person A, B, and C, and they're fighting with each other and they have competing interests and powers are clashing, we've got to learn how to love people in a way that manifests the justice of God. Now, we've talked a lot about justice, but let me just read you one more verse that describes what this could look like. Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Everybody say do justice. Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the resident alien, or to the fatherless or the widow. Shed no innocent blood in this place. So our motives for action are to value human beings in a way that reflects the love and justice of God. That's going to affect our methods. Listen, in the world, public debate, public cultural change often involves demonizing and hating people and then using methods of real politics. Mean, you, if you want to beat your enemy, you run a smear campaign and there's commercials popping up every 45 seconds on TV all election year. Talking about how horrible the other person is. It means you use deception. Just say the same lie over and over again. Loud enough until people think it's the truth. Right? So there's all sorts of methods that the world uses. But we've got to not be conformed to the world. But be transformed by the gospel. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now we could talk a lot about what the methods of. This looks like and it looks different in different contexts. But friends, if you if we studied the history of Christianity and studied who are the great people who are role models of public discipleship, who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and made disciples and made a significant change in their culture so that vulnerable people were treated with dignity in a way that honored their humanity and gave glory to God and showed a sign of what the kingdom of God is like. They did a lot of different things, but really it boils down to the same simple things the Bible says. Their weapons were the truth of God's word, prayer, and loving service. That was their weapons. They used the truth of God's word boldly in a way that brought kings to their knees. It's a powerful word. Don't underestimate it, friends. They prayed until God moved history. And then they rolled their sleeves up and got in there and worked and worked and served and loved. That's that's our methods. 
Transformed nonconformists have our motives and methods refined by the gospel. Second, we are willing to steward power to bless others, but we're also happy to lay our power down. Let me remind you of a passage from Mark 10 that we read a few weeks ago. Jesus calls his disciples to himself. Mark 10, 42 through 45 says this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, here's how the world uses power. It uses power to dominate other people to get what I want. And now Jesus is saying, don't be conformed to that way of using power. Be transformed by Jesus, by me. Jesus is saying. So he goes on to say, it shall not be so among you. Don't be conformed. But whoever would be great among you must be your. Y'all know what it says. What does it say? Whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came with power and he used his power not to force everybody to bow down to him, but to heal the sick. To cast out demons, to teach ordinary people the liberating word of God, to feed the hungry. He used his power to serve. And then the text says, not only did he use his power to serve, but he gave his life as a ransom for many. He laid his power down for the good of others. Now, Christians, if we've got power, and by the way, we talked about we shouldn't be ashamed of the idea of power. God created you in his image. And part of what that means is you've all got power. You've got the power to influence others. You can bless others or you can curse others in a thousand different ways. Whatever power you have to use, you can either use it to bless people, you can use it to curse people, or you can just not use it. And what the Bible calls you to do is use it to bless people. But there's a temptation that comes with power, which is once you've got it, you don't want to lose it. Right? I've seen over and over Christians who I've known who've gone into public service have fallen into this temptation of power, which is I'm going to try to get elected or I'm going to go into this public position so I can glorify God by serving people. But then once I get in there, I'm afraid of losing my position or my power. So I'm going to compromise so I can keep the power to do some greater good later. But that greater good never seems to materialize. So as Christians, if we're going to impact the public for good, we've got to be willing to use our power for the good of others. We've also got to be willing to lay it down. Third, we are committed to core moral convictions while remaining humble about disagreements. I'm just going to be real brief on this point because I don't have time, but this is countercultural in two ways. Our culture is at a moment right now where we are radical moral relativists when it's convenient, right? So we'll say what is true for you may be true for you, but it's not true for me. What is right for you may be right for you, but it's not right for me until I really disagree with you. And then we flip a switch and we demonize our enemies, right? We go cancel them and oppose them in every way. Christians are called to do the opposite of both of those. We're not radical moral relatives because our God is a God of truth and righteousness and love and justice, right? We believe in moral absolutes like the dignity of every human being. So when we look at the Holocaust or we look at race slavery, we don't just say, I don't like that. We say it's evil, right? We have moral convictions. But then as we're talking about how do we live out our moral convictions? Okay, it's one thing to say Christians ought to care about ecological stewardship or Christians need to care about justice for immigrants or Christians need to care about educational equity. But then you ask the question, what is our problem? How do you fix it? Now, that's complicated, isn't it? And Christians need to be people who have 
humility in our public engagement and in our dialogue with one another to seek truth and to have hard conversations to try and find common ground instead of demonizing our opponents. Amen. I've got some Bible verses on this. Let me just give you one. James 3:17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. That means not if you disagree with me, I demonize you. It means let's have a conversation full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, I want to end today by just unpacking for a moment this last one. In our public discipleship, Christians are people for whom our otherworldly hope in Jesus gives us courage to act responsibly in this world. Supernatural courage from the Holy Spirit. I want us to think about this word courage for the last few moments together before we take the Lord's Supper. Everybody say courage. Courage is a common word in the Bible. Lots of verses about courage. Here's a famous one. Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, here's the question. What is courage? What does it mean? Think often when we hear this word courage, we think somebody who doesn't have fear. Well, that's not it. It's not the absence of fear. Or we think somebody who recklessly does dangerous stuff. No, that's called being stupid. Don't confuse that with courage, right? One of the best short reflections on the nature of courage I've ever read was from the Christian philosopher named Joseph Pieper. I want to read you what he said as we move to a close here. Uh, close here. He starts out by quoting St. Augustine, who said in his book, The City of God, Courage is a testimony to the existence and power of evil in the world. Do you hear that? Courage is a testimony to the existence and power of evil in the world. Then Pieper explains that quote. He says, in other words, because justice and goodness do not automatically prevail on their own, because on the contrary, their success depends on human effort. Therefore, courage is to be accounted among the elements that make a person right or whole. It is a liberal illusion to assume that you can consistently act justly without ever incurring risks. Risk for your immediate well-being, the tranquility of your daily routine, your possessions, your good name, your public honor. In extreme instances, possibly even more, liberty, health, and life itself. In other words, doing good, overcoming evil with good might cost you everything. That's why you need courage. He continues, all this clarifies at the outset some essential features of courage. For instance, as Thomas Aquinas put it, the praise of courage Depends on the justice involved. Now, here's what makes this quote particularly powerful for me. Pieper first published his reflections on courage in Germany in the 1930s. Nazis are coming to power. And when he titled his little pamphlet, his little study from this quote from Thomas Aquinas, the praise of courage depends on the justice involved. Both his friends and his enemies, namely the Nazis, understood what he was saying is This patriotism, this willing to sacrifice our life for the fatherland that we're celebrating here is not courage. It's folly. Courage would be to resist that evil. That's what he was saying at great risk to himself. Now, Joseph Pieper was not like some mountain climber guy. That's what we think of when we hear courage, right? Instead, he was somebody saying we must stand for truth and righteousness, even if it costs us everything. Which is why, skipping a little bit further, listen to the end of the quote. Images of risky mountain climbing or dangerous ski jumping, are exactly what do not illustrate the nature of courage as virtue. 
He says, how else could this virtue be the call and challenge of all people, of any average person, indeed of you and me? In other words, if the Bible wants all of us to be courageous, courage must be something other than bungee jumping, right? He says, then he, he goes on and says this, invariably such courage in action is altogether unpretentious, real courage. He says, to, to be courageous means to oppose injustice in the face of overwhelming external power. And to accept willingly any resulting disadvantage, be it only public ridicule or social isolation. What is courage? It's to oppose evil, oppose injustice, no matter what the cost, and to keep doing it until you die or Jesus comes back. That's real courage. Now, Christians, why do we have courage? Well, we have courage because we know God. We have courage like the midwives of Exodus 1 had courage when they defied Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, to save lives because they knew that God was more powerful than Pharaoh. We got courage like Queen Esther, who risked her life to go advocate for the Jewish people who were about to experience ethnic cleansing because she knew that God was stronger than the king. We've got courage like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood up to evil kings and spoke the truth of God. All those people got delivered by God. We've also got courage, though, like John the Baptist or the Apostle Paul, who spoke God's truth to King Herod or to the emperor and paid the price with their lives. Now, how can you have courage like that, that you're willing even to die and to lose everything? Here's how. 1 Corinthians 15 celebrates the resurrection of Jesus and says every Christian is going to share in that resurrection. If you trust in Jesus, this life is not the end of your hope. You're going to rise with Jesus in the new creation. And then ends by saying this verse. Some of you all know it. 1 Corinthians 15.58. If you know it, you can say it with me. Therefore, be my beloved brothers. I said it wrong. Sorry, guys. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. When you have the hope of resurrection life beyond this world, you can pursue the purposes of God in this world, even if it costs you everything. Because you know, not only is Jesus going to win, but you're going to be there for the victory party. That's what it means to be a transformed nonconformist. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth, this gospel truth that we've been reflecting on. As we go to the Lord's table now, finishing up this four-week time of thinking about public discipleship, I just pray that this gospel of Jesus would continue to transform our hearts. So we'd be transformed nonconformists, people of love, people of wisdom, people of humility, people of hope, people of courage by your grace. Thank you that you offer us forgiveness for all the time we've failed and we've acted worldly. I pray that that experience of your forgiveness would help us to become more and more like Jesus. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.